Our panel in studio this morning, Jared Howland, Irish Examiner columnist, public affairs consultant and former senior political advisor. Good morning, Jared. Good morning, Gavin. Uh, Ivana Bacic is a Labour senator and a law lecturer at Trinity College Dublin. Good morning, Ivana. Good morning, Gavin. And Hugh O'Connell has uh, augmented himself with a new title since the last time he was in. He's no longer just merely a Sagittarius of a certain age. He is now the political <laughs> correspondent with independent newspapers. Good morning, Hugh. Morning, Gavin. Aren't you delighted with and that reminder? thank you again for a wonderful introduction. You, you are very, very welcome. Uh, let's have a quick tour of what's on the front pages of this morning's newspapers. Uh, We'll start with the Sunday Times. Coveney backs Russian trade in face of sanctions. Simon Coveney has been accused of making a political blunder, blunder during a recent... Speaking of blunders, uh, Simon Coveney has been accused of making a political blunder during a recent press conference in Moscow by saying he hopes to see an increase in trade with Russia even in the face of sanctions and restrictions which were imposed by the EU following the annexation of Crimea and military involvement in Ukraine. The Minister for Foreign Affairs made the comments on July the 2nd, that's about 10 days ago, while sharing a stage with Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, he visited Moscow earlier this month as part of a diplomatic effort to win support for Ireland's bid to secure a seat in the UN Security Council. In response to questions about trade, Coveney said Russia was regarded as an exciting market for Irish food when he was Agriculture Minister, but its relationship with the EU changed after the sanctions. He said the trade between the two countries had increased by 33% in 2018 and he hoped to see continued growth even in the face of sanctions and restrictions. That's a quote. Uh, he also said he wanted to see a normalisation of relations with Russia and noted that there were difficulties. Uh, interesting to see how you would square increasing trade with sanctions that Ireland is, is party to. Um, also on the front page, and this is something we'll talk about in a little while, uh, Donaldson tells Varadkar that the DUP may agree to all island port checks. Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP MP, has urged the Taoiseach to talk directly to the British government if he wants an all-island solution and the threat of a hard border. The DUP chief whip said he was open to Britain discussing Leo Varadkar's suggestion that border checks after a no-deal Brexit could be avoided by checking live animals and animal products from Britain as they arrived at ports anywhere on the island of Ireland. Comments, of course, that Leo Varadkar made uh, sitting in this studio to pack Kenny a news talk two days ago. Uh, moving on, the Sunday Business Post. Crackdown on firms that falsely designate staff as self-employed. This is by Michael Brennan. He says companies that falsely designate staff as self-employed are facing higher fines of up to €25,000 as part of a new government crackdown. The new initiative would also see a focus on the increased use of self-employed contractors in professional sectors, as well as on more traditional targets, such as bonus subcontractors, bogus rather, subcontractors on construction sites. Uh, Minister for Social Protection Regina Doherty plans to bring forward legislation to increase the penalties for employers who deliberately classifies permanent staff as self-employed rather than employees. That, he explains, is in order to avoid uh, an employer having to co- cover uh, the likes of holiday pay and sick pay and also having to pay employers PRSI. And also on the front uh, of the Sunday Business Post, I hope uh, Ivana Bacic won't be threatening to do this, barristers threaten industrial action. Uh, criminal cases could grind to a halt as barristers threaten strike action in state prosecutions as part of a long-running row over fees. The Bar Council has been appearing for higher fees for barristers after they were cut during the financial crisis but the threat of withdrawing services marks a serious escalation into dispute. I suspect you won't get too many people all that sad about the uh, the prices charged by junior and senior counsel, but nonetheless, they are entitled... I, I should say, Gavin, I'm no longer in practice as a barrister, okay. but I will say, in defence of criminal legal aid practitioners, they aren't among the highest paid of okay. well, generally. F- fair point and well made. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Independent. New HSE boss in dark on cervical glitch. Maeve Sheehan reports that the chief executive of the HSE was not informed about the computer system glitch that has left hundreds of women without the results of their cervical check tests. This is according to a patient advocacy group. It says that Paul Reid, who took up the top job two months ago, was believed only to have found out last week about the IT glitch responsible for the latest communications failure to impact the cancer screening programme. The HSE confirmed on Friday that it had become a 
aware in February of the IT issue at the US laboratory which led to 800 women not receiving the tests uh, but apparently Paul Reed, the uh, new chief executive of the HSE was only made aware of it in the last couple of days. Uh, the front page story in the Sunday Independent, however, crime family linked to Garda recruit. This is a, a complicated story, but I think told well by Philip Ryan. It's in one of the other papers this morning too. Uh, Garda Commissioner Drew Harris is embroiled in a dispute with his top security officers over an application to join the force from an individual who has close family links to the leader of the Kinahan cartel. Mr. Harris is understood to be still considering the application by the prospective Garda recruit who voluntarily disclosed family connections to the International Crime Organisation during the vetting process. However, senior intelligence officers in the Garda Crime and Security Branch have raised serious concerns about recruiting anyone with a family link to the the crime gang headed by Daniel Kinahan. Mr. Harris has been warned that the individual's recruitment could pose significant risks to the force and leave him open to being compromised by the cartel. The applicant is understood to have told Garda that he hasn't been in contact uh, with the family member who is linked to the billion euro Kinahan Drunks Empire for some years and he insists that he has no intention of speaking to them in the future and apparently that has caused some rancour inside the, the Angarda Siakona. Um, finally, front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday, ex-army general sacked the defence minister. Uh, the defence minister, Paul Kyo should be fired uh, according to retired brigadier general Ger O'Hearn uh, who has joined a growing chorus uh, of demands for the beleaguered minister to resign or be sacked after some confusion and some uh, contradictory accounts of why exactly two of the naval service vessels are going to be in dock and Hoboland for a while uh, and finally the Irish uh, Sunday World confess what you did to my baby that's an interview with Bridget O'Donoghue who is the mother of two year old Santina Coley who was uh, buried earlier this week she is urging the killer uh, to come forward and to admit what they've done to the Gardaí so that's a little tour of what's in today's Sunday papers but uh, one common common thread in all of today's papers not on the front pages but it is a substantive part inside and Jared, I'll start with you on this uh, is the tributes page to the, the late great uh, Noel Whelan whose funeral took place yesterday Yes, I, I knew Noel for, I think, nearly 30 years and I, I worked with his wife, Sinead, for many years. And I, I was at his funeral uh, yesterday. And, you know, Noel was a, a big man in, in many ways. Um, he what, what struck me was the diversity of, of all he did in such a short time. You mm. know, Ivana would know his, his work at the bar yes, uh, right. and he had just uh, become a senior counsel. Then there was the very public profile as a columnist and his in- engagement in, in, in commentary over the years. And then behind that was his huge roles in various key referenda, uh, the, um, the uh, abortion referendum and the equal marriage referendum but uh, and this, the, the Shannon campaign. And I remember, by the way, something that wasn't mentioned, his role in an interview with Pat Rabbit on another station okay. in the context of the government's proposal then to bring in a referendum to give the Dole and Oireachtas committees more power. Mm. And I remember one particular interview between Noel and Pat Rabbit. It was pure combustion. And I think that that was the moment that that referendum went pear-shaped. I think the words pure combustion Um, are often associated with Pat Rabbit, but uh, not necessarily in this context. What also came out about Noel is the amount of time he was giving on just a friendship basis to an awful lot of people in organisations giving advice. And and that's never counted. Of course, it can't be counted. Mm. But clearly, I think the diversity of people uh, in the church in Beechwood Avenue yesterday were testament to that. And he was brought home last night to Ballycallan, where his father uh, was the the postman 
where his father had been the local councillor for years and years, who very nearly got a doll seat uh, in, in 1977. And I remember the polling day in 1977 uh, and the late Seamus Whelan because uh, my, my uncle was a supporter of his and in the polling station in Clearystown, uh, the late Seamus was doing the rounds and they went into the polling station in Clearystown. They came out and there was two old codgers standing outside and fair play to them. They shouted, up! Corish, <laughs> and that's 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 my that's my memory of that day. But Noel, in his own beautiful memoir of his own late father, said that that election was his first political campaign when he was on the back of a truck with uh, outsized <laughs> megaphone uh, supporting his dad, who who clearly he, he dearly loved and respected, and now he's buried near him. Ivana, you were someone who would come across him in, in quite a few different hats. That's right. And as Jared has said, Noel was very, very well respected and regarded at the bar. He had a very busy practice. He was a senior counsel in recent years, had done a good deal of criminal work. Um, I had the pleasure of serving with him on the steering group of the Together Fies campaign in last year's Repeal the Eighth referendum. It was one of the many political campaigns Noel had been engaged in. And uh, Jared tells us there about his, his first political campaign. But certainly he had given a huge amount of public service over many years mm. on repeal the 8th last year of course on marriage equality where he played a very leading role in 2015 and on the campaign to retain the Shannon in 2013 but he was such a well-known and well-regarded political observer and commentator over many years a great deal of, of sadness and regret at his passing anyone who'd had contact with him knows how generous he was with his time he'd mm. been down with us at the Burren Law School in Ballyvaughan a couple of years ago um, you know we, many of us stood up in the Shannon on Thursday and paid him tributes as I did because he was such a staunch ally on so many campaigns such a generous person and so devoted to his family to his wife Sinead and their son Seamus mm, There's yeah. a, a very nice piece uh, by the, the Fianna Fáil leader Micheál Martin actually on page 10 of the Sunday Independent today a really nice tribute to Noel Whelan uh, Hugh we would have come across him on our daily beats at different mm. uh, summer schools and other uh, campaigns and the like but I suspect a lot of people might not have even realised uh, maybe those of us uh, inside the Leinster House bubble might have known but many people who would have uh, paid very religious attention to all of his analysis uh, on different platforms over the years probably wouldn't have even realised that he was himself one time a Fianna Fáil candidate which probably stands a lot to the quality of his analysis really Absolutely yeah. I mean, I th- and I think Micheál makes that point doesn't he that the, he was one of the few or pro- probably the only political commentator um, that had that experience mm. um, yeah. of having run uh, for both the Dáil and Shannon un- unsuccessfully in, in, in 1997 I think um, but like he was just I knew Noel a little bit I used to um, live in, in Ran and I used to bump into him a lot after he dropped his uh, son to school every morning mm. he'd, he'd be walking around with an Irish Times under his arm and Good um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love the image Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, he like you know he'd always stop for a chat um, he he was just enormously helpful any time I ever uh, sought his uh, his vice, advice or his um, his expertise for stuff I was writing or, or whatever um, and he, he just had an enormous uh amount of give giving in mm. him you know mm. and uh, an enormous intellect as well obviously and he's just such a huge loss I think yeah. um, to Irish public life I, I remember thinking the first uh, time far too young the well. first time that I met him uh, absolutely 50 years old is, is, is no life at all I remember the, the first time I think that I met him in person was at the McGill Summer School in 2013 and I remember feeling very junior I was only new in the block I was mm. only a political correspondent for three or four weeks thinking that basically no one would knew me or have any sort of time today to give to someone who was such a novice and I remember distinctly 
uh, Noel Whelan, not only knowing who I was, but clearly though he probably thought that my analysis was very superficial or very uh, <laughs> rudimentary, was still perfectly happy to hear you out to the very yeah. last, even if it was an opinion he didn't necessarily agree with, because either he might have just been politely humouring you or he was opening himself up to the idea that perhaps his own mind could be changed uh, yeah. from an unexpected no, it, source. I had the same experience with him, you know, when I was very new to the job as well. And like he, it was clear he read everything. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But he also had that insight, Hugh. I mean, mm. I think you're right about his experience as having been a candidate mm. meant that he had a real insight into party politics mm. and electoral politics. Yeah. And of course, was a political nerd, a political mm. anorak yeah, yeah. in terms of the detail, the level of detail he knew. And that was I, always and impressive. he was very critical of Fianna Fáil, I mean, particularly kind of yes, in the run up right. to the to the collapse in 2011 and subsequent to that. And I don't think people in Fianna Fáil necessarily appreciated that at times. They thought he was, he's our guy. <laughs> yeah. Why is he saying this? But I mean, it just, it, it was a testament to his independence. And his and his intellect. Yeah, well, I can vouch for that. Yeah. No, certainly, you know, if people in Fianna Fáil, <laughs> and, and may I say that's to his credit. Yeah, um, absolutely. And they, they never thank you when you support them, and they're you're the worst in the world when you don't. But that's always the case for people who come from a political background vis-a-vis their own. Mm. But the real contest for Noel in 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 1997 wasn't his doll run in Dublin South East, where he was always a long shot. It was his much better shot for the Fianna Fáil nomination in Wexford. Uh, mm. And that was the real contest for him. And uh, it, it reminds me of a remark attributed uh, to Michael Noonan, and I've no idea if this is correct or not, but it's such a brilliant remark. He said, it's you know, great burden on any sitting politician to find young upcoming talent. And when they do, to crush it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, which says and, an awful and, lot. And I that suppose. was the story of that convention yeah. uh, process in, 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 in 1990s. And that experience alone gave Noel a huge insight into the workings <laughs> of uh, the politics I, I, of every I party. I bet it did. Uh, anyway, we, we were thinking this morning of his widow Sinead, his son Seamus, his mother Myra, his mm. 11 surviving siblings and his wider circle of friends as well. Uh, anyone who crossed his path was, uh, was, was privileged to know him uh, and may he rest in peace. Uh, from the sublime uh, and frankly to the ridiculous, let's hear a little bit of Boris Johnson this morning. What they need to do to the Irish backstop, as I've said repeatedly in uh, this election process, is they need to take the 175 pages of the Irish backstop and they need basically to remit it, to remove it, to delete it, and to put the solution to all the issues of frictionless trade across the Irish border and indeed elsewhere uh, and and resolve them in the context of the FTA, the Free Trade Agreement, that we will do after we have come out problem on October that. the 31st. There's a problem with that, that because the, way the, forward. the European Union doesn't see the backstop as part of the future negotiations. It sees the backstop as a fallback for these, should these negotiations fail. It wants no, the backstop no, no. in place, Andrew, should they fail? You, it's a precondition no, you, for you, you to negotiate no, and they no, won't change not, their no, mind no, on that. No. Well, that's, that's, if I may say so, more of the defeatism and negativity that we've had over the last no, three years. No, it's just an accurate reading really no, of the view no, in Brussels. No, no, it isn't. It's entirely wrong. Because what's happened over the last three years is that the EU has been presented uh, with a UK partner that is basically determined to stay in the customs union and in the single market. And that's effectively what the backstop constrains us to do. Uh, so that is the likely new British Prime Minister Boris Johnson he'll be uh, taking the keys to number 10 in 9 or 10 days or so there he is being interviewed this week by the BBC's Andrew Neil so that's his position in terms of the backstop now here's what Leo Varadkar had to say when he was being interviewed by Pat Kenny here on News Talk last Friday Well I think what he's saying which is incorrect uh, is that uh, we can sort out uh, the issues relating to tra- trade and the Irish border uh, during the implementation phase 
as they call it, transition phase, as we call it. But there won't be one if there's yes, a hard exactly, Brexit. exactly, and that is the kind of reality check that I think the new prime minister is going to hear all about from their officials, advi- officials and advisors on the twenty sixth or twenty seventh of July, because what this will mean for. Um, the UK uh, is um, an inability to trade. Uh, their car factories won't operate. They won't be able to get their, their parts in time. That, I think, will be a consequence of Brexit for Britain is that it will fall into relative economic decline for many decades, uh, probably be overtaken by France again. And slowly over time, it'll be overtaken by lots of countries in Asia. And I think one of the difficulties for, for Britain is they're struggling to uh, cope with the fact that as a country and economy, they're not as important in the world as they used to be. Uh, Leo Varker speaking to Pat Kenny in this studio two days ago. Jared Howland, much and all as many people might agree with the analysis of Leo Varadkar there. Uh, given the high stakes diplomacy and the need to be very genteel around all of this and the government's refusal to get involved in the politics of the Conservative leadership race, is it very helpful of Leo Varadkar to be openly touting how much Britain is now going to fall into economic decline for decades to come? Well, well funnily, I was speaking to somebody yesterday uh, British person and they were were Remain voters uh, and they had come to two conclusions one that there must be Brexit because the fact of not being Brexit will be so disruptive mm. to Britain in terms of pol- in terms of its politics uh, that has now become an unavoidable necessity but apropos of nothing was very down on our Leo Varadkar and had a sense of him of being very belligerent now I believe that sense is very exaggerated mm. but it exists mm. and Indeed, I think it's one that's been created by, by tabloid press yeah. it's orchestrated I mean I think yes. that's the reality if you that. look at the British press bad portrayal. Leo yeah. is, is, is being pumped up in, in the British consciousness for a particular political purpose and I think he needs to be very mindful of that that he does not become the story here well, I mean, but he is. But comments like that to Pat Kenny on Friday are, are kind of playing up to that that stereotype almost. Mm. I mean, okay, yes, I mean, what he's saying is true, but <laughs> it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true, perhaps. Yeah, but but I mean, but much he, like Kim Darrock, perhaps he shouldn't have said it. it. You know, this is a sensitive time. Um, you know, there there does need to be kind of a, I suppose, a diplomatic effort to, to try and achieve an outcome that is not a no deal Brexit, mm. and does you know something that's not not going to annoy the British. Um. So perhaps he could have done without going as far as he did in that interview on Friday. Can I offer an alternative uh, view? And I'm not, I don't wish in any way to defend uh, Leo Radker, but I will say this. I think his comments, as Hewitt said, I think all of us would acknowledge, I think nearly everyone listening would acknowledge mm. his comments do ring true. What mm. he's saying is right. I mean, mm. if anyone looks at the negotiations that led up to the agreement, if anyone reads the withdrawal agreement, I have to say I'm one of the few nerds who, who has done, you know, if anyone's aware of the reality, they'd be cheering on what Leo Varadkar said. And while his comments absolutely will feed into this narrative in the British press of bad Leo and belligerent and obstructive Ireland and so on, they can only do Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael but, good but, here, but, electorally. So, yeah. so I, I suspect that may have been mm. something, behind, there may have been something that. And can I just say this also? I think, you know, it's understandable also that there is an increasing frustration and exasperation among mm. Irish negotiators and in Brussels at the sheer ignorance of the British negotiation team. Which all I the mean, stuff about uh, shouting about uh, GATT, I'm, Article 5B I'm, and all of oh, this. the nonsense they're spouting. I mean, really. And, uh, you know, I'm sure many people listening to Leo Radker and the Taoiseach on, on Friday may have thought of Donald Tusk's very exasperated tweet about a special place in hell for mm. Brexiteers. Now, but, clearly that wasn't exactly diplomatic language. But at the same time, the level of vitriol that, have, that has been expressed by British by the British Tory party in particular and hard Brexiteers especially about Europe, about the EU, 
about Ireland, the level of insults mm. that, you know, diplomats, uh, politicians, so on across the EU and in Ireland have been exposed to. I think it's understandable that that frustration is expressed at times. I don't think it will have an impact, I have to say, on the British Conservative Party Mm. election. My own view, I mean, it's interesting reading, coming through the papers today on views on Brexit, some excellent analyses, particularly by Susan O'Keefe in the Business Post, running down the clock. Boris Johnson is essentially running down the clock, spouting Mm. nonsense. Well, he's a man Uh, who's perfectly happy to literally lock the doors of Parliament if that's what's necessary to make sure they get out at Halloween. Apparently, although there's still, and and Tim Shipman then is a great piece in the Sunday Times about the, the background to the Kim Darroch story mm. and so on and again feeding in saying ultimately will this do more damage to Boris Johnson as yeah. Prime Minister but, 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 but I can I just say but I suppose yeah. the final, final analysis yeah, of it please. is that there's still this un- underlying narrative through all the Irish commentary that says look there will be a reality check whether it's, we all assume it's Boris Johnson I think but whichever mm. of them whether it's he or Jeremy Hunt there will be a reality check once they become Prime Minister and there will have to be a U-turn my own view is that if it's Boris, the most likely prospect is that he'll call a general election or else he's going to remain uh, as obliged to the DUP as mm. Theresa May has been and as caught, therefore, in that spiral and that well, trap. The one thing that I think is particularly striking, firstly, that the, the three Sunday broadsheets have all editorialised on the same topic, which you don't often tend to see very much. Sun Independent, new tactics needed for the Brexit endgame. Business Post, a clear plan from government would boost the backstop case. Sunday Times says the backstop stops here or else we go back to an economic dark age. They're all generally putting the point, Hugh, that they believe that if Boris Johnson is to be kept at his word, and I know some people might guffaw at that idea, but you have no option but to take him at (laughs) his word, that that maybe it is now time to at least contemplate the idea of a time-limited backstop that could mean a border five or ten years down the road, if that's what's necessary to stop the very real prospect of a hard border at Halloween. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that's now entering the the debate a bit more, is this idea that we might have to offer some sort of concession Mm. uh, in order to to avoid a no-deal scenario. Um, but I think, you know, the, the Taoiseach can't on the one hand say that, you know, we're not going to get involved in the in the t- Conservative Party leadership race and we're not going to comment on that and mm. then turn around and, and say the kind of stuff he, he said on Friday. And I do think that that, that, is, that is problematic at a sensitive uh, time diplomatically, politically. And I think that, um, you know, some consideration has to be given to how are we going to... Um, change the game a little bit when when it comes to dealing with a new prime minister and a new new administration in Britain and how are we going to get a deal across the line I mean Wouldn't it be victory for Boris Johnson if we were to dilute our position slightly though? It depends on the way in which you do that Um, you know I suppose diluting our political position would be if or our position would be if he were to say, right, we'll reopen the withdrawal agreement. I mean, I don't think there can be any backsliding on that. But in terms of the political declaration, is mm. there some form of formulation of language within that that he could go back and sell to the hardline uh, Brexiteers, to the DUP? That's going to be the difficulty. Um, Jared, do, th- do you think that there is, given that that would inherently re- require, uh, you know, being part of a single market or customs union, which would mean being slightly constrained by Brussels in ways that Westminster does not want to be? Well, what we don't know and we won't find out until the, the, Halloween, the eve of Halloween is what the big European countries are prepared to do w- mm. with Boris literally in the final hours. And we just need to be aware of that. We haven't seen the whites of their eyes yet. But now, I don't think there will be any backsliding on, mm. on, on, on the agreement. Did we not see the whites of their eyes back in March? Well, they backslide. They, they've continually pushed out the deadline. I mean, there was March and then there was April and now there's October. So mm-hmm. what that teaches us, I think, is that when push comes to shove, the European Union has shown a flexibility here to push out the deadline, for example. So what can they offer 
beyond that, could they offer another extension? Yeah. I mean, I know that everyone is tearing themselves apart in the Conservative Party saying yeah. we have to leave on the 31st but, of October and both candidates have committed to doing that, yeah. a deal or no deal. But, you know, mm. Britain was supposed to leave on the 31st of March yeah. this year. Everyone, you know, the Prime Minister, the outgoing Prime Minister said that she yeah. would absolutely do and, that. And, and then she didn't. She backslided. But the Rubicon's so, been crossed now because well. I think the only leader who might pose a bit of an obstacle in the European Council when it comes to the, the whites mm. of eyes, Gerard, like you mentioned, is Emmanuel oh. Macron because he wants to just cut the cord. He wants rid of them now yes. at this stage. Mm. But part of the logic that he espoused back in March was that he wanted to get rid of them because the rest of the EU has to go on functioning. Mm. The Parliament has to be able to appoint a new Commission President, which it could be doing in two days' time. You need to get all of that stuff off and running. Once that's the case, then hasn't Britain's continued participation just been normalised, Ivana, where it, it shouldn't necessarily be as much of an obstacle to have them lingering on on a permanent sort of semi-limbo membership forever? <laughs> yes, well, this state does seem to have been going on for a long time. But I suppose what's become what's been made clear on the EU, si- the EU side is that an extension to the 31st October deadline will only be contemplated if there's a very specific uh, reason for it. In other words, a general election or indeed the announcement of a calling of a second mm. referendum by whoever is then British Prime Minister. So I think that's why I think personally there is uh, at least the prospect of a, an election being called by Boris mm. Johnson in order to give himself what he I suppose hopes will be an ab- a majority. Yeah. But could I say this? I think we have to be careful when we talk about the backstop that we don't uh, slide into the British press characterisation of it as an Irish backstop. It's a backstop negotiated by Britain with the EU and Britain or UK as a co-guarantor, the mm. British government as a co-guarantor with the Irish government of the Good Friday the agreement and the peace process had to agree it on the basis of and had to expand it to the whole of the UK and of course it is only contingency and again that's all lost mm. in the sort of the, ter- the terrible rhetoric coming out of Boris Johnson I see some glimmer of hope also I have to say even if my idea of a general election or indeed a second referendum doesn't come about there is a glimmer of hope of course in the reports today that Geoffrey Donaldson of the DUP is it seems mm. um, offering a little more flexibility about the prospect of an all-island yeah. approach, which of course is precisely checks, as it is, rather than having checks on the border. Yeah. Uh, and you know, this does seem to offer somewhat of a, mm. a way a way through if the DUP are to stay in in government and to stay with the influence they have yeah. over whoever is the Tory leader and the British Prime Minister, that there might be some way that yeah. we can avoid the terrible prospect of a return to a hard border. And I see again in the papers today, Northern Ireland's police chief constable. Simon Byrne talking about the detrimental impact reinstatement of hard border border checks across the 500 Mm. kilometres on the island would have on the peace process and on security. So that's again a really, really dangerous prospect that Uh, we need to avoid. On the topic of an early election, I thought it was really interesting to hear Theresa May talking to the BBC's Laura Coonsberg doing her final interview before handing over the reins in a couple of weeks time and she was asked whether she regretted calling the election that saw her lose the majority and have to go into an improvised coalition with the DUP and she said on balance probably not because at least it was important to have a mandate that she was a Prime Minister who had never led a campaign and she felt at least it was necessary to have the public imprimatur so perhaps Interesting uh, message for Boris Perhaps the same will prevail for Boris Johnson or or Jeremy Hunt who knows Uh, There is a lot of stuff uh, in today's Sunday papers about the cost of insurance and the fact that a Judicial Council Bill has now been passed and uh, particularly striking uh, Ivana Bacic is a declaration on page 2 of the Sunday Times from Charlie Flanagan who says sometimes that insurers just pluck figures from the sky when they are set 
betting motor and business premiums and calling on them to be more transparent in how they fix their charges. It seems as if in the last couple of days a, a bit of a tide has turned where people are now finally deconstructing the amount that insurers are able to charge us for the general business of doing our lives. Yes, I think you're right, Gavin. We're seeing in recent days uh, a, a turn of focus um, onto the insurance companies themselves. Charlie Flanagan, the Minister's intervention is certainly interesting where he's suggesting premiums are plucked from the air. I think many of us paying premiums might have thought that all along. But perhaps, you know, more with a more evidential basis was the interesting intervention during the week where Pierce Doherty asked insurance company mm. uh, representatives about their allegations about fraudulent yeah. claims and how many fraud if they're saying that people yeah. that how many you know, have been referred to yeah, the guards. Exactly. If, yeah. if insurance companies are suggesting that there's a wide array of fraudulent claims out there and that this is what's driving up premiums, mm. then how many fraudulent claims are they yeah. reporting to the prosecution authorities? And it turns out only a tiny number. I think uh, only 19, if I'm right, over a six month period had been referred, about yeah. 1%. This despite the industry's Dis- statement being somewhere between 10 and 20% of all claims exactly. being frivolous or so, fraudulent. You know, something isn't right there. And I think the insurance companies, are, you know, it's, it's correct to turn spotlight on the insurance companies. I think also what has to be said, while, you know, it, it's the courts and the legal professions are being accused of escalating costs. In fact, the majority of claims are settled out of court. Insurance companies not being willing to fight. And I think mm. that's had an effect that, of creating a compo culture where people have an expectation they'll simply get a payout without needing to defend their claims in court. Now, I think it's really positive to see insurance companies are now fighting more in court. The reports, of course, this week about the case which was thrown out by Judge Jacqueline Lenan, where mm. she said, um, arising out of a, a, a five uh, claimants seeking damages for what she said was just a very minor... Um, yeah, uh, what we would characterise is a tip most uh, of us. Minor yeah. tip, yes. I was mm. going, I hesitated even to use the word yeah. crash because it wasn't. You know, that sort of robust commentary by judges where she acu- where she was critical also of, the, of solicitors in general mm. taking on such cases. But also, you know, this change in culture where it seems insurance companies are more willing to fight claims. I think that's positive because that's the sort of action that's needed. You know, the Judicial yeah. Council Bill, again, another sort of milestone this week is that we passed the Judicial Council Bill. Yeah, and, th- and this will provide for a panel of judges to, to recommend what the payouts in these cases should be, is that Yes, and we've given them a a more time-limited period of six months to produce the uh, guidelines for Mm. judges. And again, I think that's all part of changing a culture where uh, insurance uh, uh, claims are are taken, are are contested, where there's a view that they are exaggerated and where, you know, people with genuine claims who suffer genuine pain and suffering Mm. will be entitled to fair damages. Uh, So I think it's it's been positive in terms of developments for what is a really serious issue. And I know there's a new alliance has been set up looking for insurance reform which is made up of yeah. a whole range, not only of small businesses, but also of charities and others who've been really badly hit. Public institutions badly hit too by insurance claims over the yeah, years. Yeah, true, fair point. Um, Hugh O'Connor, we were saying off air, though, that this might be a bit of a turning point and you immediately sounded a bit sceptical. You're not sure that the, the spin is beginning to unravel quite that quickly. Well, I just think it's something that the government has, has spoken of, the need to kind of tackle for the last two to three years. And I, I've you know, seen very little up until now, to, to be fair, in terms of the Judicial Council uh, bill passing, very little action, I think, uh, to, that's actually forced down mm-hmm. um, people's premiums. Um, but certainly, I suppose the intervention of, of, the, of uh, Judge Lanan this week, uh, the passing of the Judicial Council bill in the, in the last week, uh, it does mark a, a, a point, and, and also Pierce Doherty's um, questioning of, of uh, and ex- exposing, I suppose, of the insurance company's uh, claims about the number of, of fraudulent claims. Um, is is our positive developments, but you know, Michael Darcy is in the Sunday Business Post today, um, urging the judiciary this this new um panel of judges yeah. on the on the uh, judicial council to who are coming up with, 
with guidelines uh, to do so by the end of the year and to get them in place by the end of the year. I think that's pretty ambitious given the pace at which reforms have moved thus far yeah. that, that that would get done by the end of the year. Uh, Jared Howling, you know a little bit about the machinery of the insides of government and how these things tend to work. What do you think it is about insurance? Because the insurance costs have been something that have been hanging around a lot of people's commercial necks for mm. 15 or 20 years now before the, the price of land became so prohibitive that was really the, the main overhead for a lot of businesses. So it's been known as being a big issue for a lot of yeah, businesses of different sizes for so long and yet every government that tries to tackle it with the best one in the world never really seems to get anywhere. What is it about the industry or the makeup of the people involved in it that they seem so uh, immune to any kind of government criticism that way? I think it's a combination of a couple of things in this instance. One is that the, the, the reform agenda uh, you know, after the Troika really ran out of steam very quickly. And it's not just in relation to insurance. It's mm. the cost of medication that we take yeah. out of community pharmacy. It is the co- legal costs yeah. as well. Uh, it's another big issue which, you know, disappeared with mm. the demise of Al- Alan Shatter. Uh, and and I, I could go on. So there's that cultural issue that the reform of the professions generally, uh, who uh, profit richly, frankly, relative to, to the, the services mm. that they provide, Provide was now, and that is because I think there is a. The professions are very well represented in government. So uh, is that all to say that, that it's, it's just a, a lack of certain vigor in the government, or a lack yeah, of real and, and intent I, to and take I, it on? And I think the professions have a lot of soft power in our society. Uh, it's one issue. Uh, there's also the fact, of course, that insurance companies weren't doing particularly well for a while. So I think that took the heat off the underlying drivers. Mm. I think uh, if, if Anna is right about the, um, the insurance companies not taking legal cases, what we know is that insurance companies are superb machines at making money. And, and the reason they haven't been taking those legal cases is not because they're behind in, in making money where they can find the opportunity is because they take a very cold calculation that the taking of those cases relative to the cost of taking mm. them they were better off settling so, so which tells its it, own it story. It makes more sense then to, to pay out as the Sunday Independent tells us this morning that a bruised thumb sustained in a fall at work which heals completely within days can still get an average payout of 17,000 euro in Ireland well, sorry, I can compared answer to 1,100 euro in Germany. But the answer is so excuse me the answer is starkly obvious of course it's better to pay 17,000 for a bruised thumb than spend two minutes in a court. The 17,000 to your man or Mm. the lady with the bruised thumb works out cheaper to the insurance company whose only object is is, is to make profit. Mm. It's a very simple calculation and it's a starkly obvious one. Ivana, you must be regretting your disclosure of 33 minutes ago that you're no longer a practising barrister. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently, but no, I'm I'm jesting. No, I think, I don't disagree with Jared, but I would say this, that, you know, the legal professions and indeed I think anyone you know most people working in any sort of legal service have been pushing hard for judicial council legislation in fact over many years Mm. and we've been very critical of the government in dragging their feet over a judicial council bill that was one really necessary reform so I think while of course you know of course yes it's it's true there um, there is uh, legal professions have been active on on loads of issues but the judicial council bill is one reform that's been actively sought and I think is very very welcome to see finally come in and, you know, I, I I think also, you know, the issue of, of insurance companies taking a cold hard look. Yes, but 
yes, but each time they decide not to pursue a claim that they might have won, they're contributing to a culture that says that allows them to charge more exactly. money. Exactly. And, you know, there is a, a great piece by Jean Kerrigan in his usual style in the Sunday Independent mm. saying, you know, the insurance firms have been so good at spinning. And, you know, he presents some really, really hard, hard cases where people have have been very wronged and have sought um, in, entitled damage compensation mm. and where the insurance company have spun very, very uh, effectively and damagingly against harmed people. And I think, you know, that t- can be yeah. lost sometimes yeah, as well in the discussion. Work. So, so you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to be defending yeah. the profession, well, well, but, 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 but I do think yeah. judicial council bills is an important reform. I'm conscious we have reformed, you know, there's been the PIAB was set up and was supposed mm, okay. to reform things and it didn't, but I hope we'll see now a yeah. real but change. But there is, there is a, a PR war. I mean, it is like every, you know, you have the, um, the insurers today mm. calling on the law society to, to crack down on solicitors who might be, uh, you know, proceeding with with potential yeah, fraudulent that's a fair claims. Call too. It's yeah. a fair call, but then you know you have all of the uh, criticism of the insurance companies as well. So everyone has who yeah. has a stake in this is not shy about getting their their point yeah. of view out there. We would almost be certainly complaining about the guards though if they were suddenly the insurance companies were referring all these cases to the mm. guards and then nothing was been done about it. We'd complain that they were sitting on this mountain of evidence and not doing anything about it. So well, that's the other thing. I think I suppose a few high-profile prosecutions of a perjury would certainly um, move things. Yeah, but, but it, it transpires that the guards aren't in, uh, don't seem to be investigating that many because they're haven't been as, as many reports. Yeah, as, precisely. As, uh, it. it's, it's a whole chicken and egg And it is thing. hard to prove. I mean, that's and it is very hard, hard to prove. There's a piece in the Sunday Business Post that I wanted to spend a couple of minutes talking about. Um, it was the case until a couple of years ago that a local authority could only investigate the standard of rental accommodation if there was a complaint made against it, which naturally disincentivised a lot of people from making complaints because if you complained about your landlord, the chances were the landlord would kick you out afterwards. Um, the Department of Housing recognised this a couple of years ago and they increased the budget for random inspections of rental accommodation to see whether they are keeping up with the minimum standards as set down by law. You would think that when you're doing uh, inspections on a random basis and not just following up on grounds for a complaint, you'd think the overall pass rate would get a little bit higher, but apparently not because um, Killian Woods, to his credit, has done freedom of information requests for a whole uh, heap of local authorities. In fact, every local authority which is currently declared an ORPZ to give you a hint of, of just how acute the rental concerns there are there. Uh, Louth County Council investigated 983 properties in 2018. 100% of them failed. Uh, Galway uh, County Council uh, well Galway City and County Council inspected 483 properties in the county environs 100% of them failed it investigated 248 pr- uh, properties in the city areas 99% of them failed uh, Limerick City and County Council investigated 1,035 properties 100% of them failed the highest pass rate in Dublin is Fingal where only eight, where only eighteen percent of properties actually passed the inspections, eighty two percent of them failed. Uh, that figure rises as high as ninety five percent failure in Dublin City, ninety six percent in Dunleary West End. Hugh O'Connell, those figures are staggering. Yeah, it's astonishing, and I think it's just finally kind of getting some statistical kind of analysis of what has obviously been a situation for years mm. where we've had rental accommodation that has been substandard and not in compliance with with what with regulations. Mm. Um, you know, hopefully this will spark reform in this area, uh, or more specifically, better accommodation standards. But you wouldn't hold out much hope. And I suppose the key is really all of these properties that are failing and all of these landlords that are failing, what's going to happen to them? Uh, yeah. What? What? How are they going to be, I suppose, pushed into making sure that their properties are up to scratch? Um, because clearly there are an awful thousands of people in Ireland living in rental accommodation mm. that, that is not in compliance with regulations. 
Um, and to, to fix that, you have to, apply, you know, it's the carrot and stick approach. You have to apply the stick in this instance, and I would have thought. Nationally, it's nine out of ten homes in those RBZs that are failing to meet minimum standards. Mm. So the areas in which rental uh, costs are at their most acute, nine out of ten rental homes, according to these random inspections, are not meeting uh, the stated guidelines, which I suppose Jared Howland gives the government a bit of a damned if they do and damned if they don't. Because if you try to move in and ensure that all these places are brought up to scratch, then firstly, you probably have a situation where the landlord can claim that the bringing it up to scratch involves a major renovation or restoration which then breaks the lease uh, and if you leave them in the market to tr- at least try and ensure that there is a basic supply that you are actively uh, leaving people to take accommodation which the state itself recognises is not up to standard. And it's also the factor I suspect a lot of these landlords in this category are small landlords uh, I mean I knew a fellow who had I think two or three houses and he said it, it worked for him because he uh, very good with his hands and he did all the repairs and maintenance himself if he wasn't doing that himself, mm. it wouldn't have worked. Mm. I suspect a lot of these people have are small landlords. They're either up to their oxters in debt for properties just never bought, or actually they're doing very nicely, uh, and uh, you know they're 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 effe- effectively ex- being exploitative. Mm. But to upgrade, um, they in turn would need to bring in contractors. And that would change the paradigm a bit for them. And it just hones in on this this model of having one or two properties to let. Uh, doesn't work over the long term economically. And to, you know, continuous maintenance and so on that, that, you, that you need to have mm. is a resource pe- people don't have. And I think this is a sort of systematic problem. But the quality of private rental accommodation, if you walk up and down the North Circular Road, which is near where I live, never been in any of these houses, but you can see occasionally through an open door, through a window, you just know Mm. these Mm. places are appalling. Uh, Ivana, what do you do about it? Because again, if you try to uh, bring these places up to code, so to speak, that you do potentially end up bringing them out of the market at a time when they're most acutely needed. And you cause evictions. I mean, that's the bottom line. And it's a deeply depressing piece. And I agree, the figures are really shocking. 95% of private of re- private rented accommodation inspected by Dublin City Council mm. failed these standards. Obviously, these are all uh, rent, pressure, rent pressure zones and therefore there's very high demand, very limited supply. I must say, you know, around South Circular Road where I live and I've mm. been in those houses and, I've, you know, over years in the past renting, I remember appalling standards, but it's very depressing that th- that, that hasn't changed mm. apparently, that there's still such low standards. But I do agree with Jared. a lot of it is a factor of over-reliance on small landlords renting out privately uh, substandard accommodation and what we need to do and it is an indictment to the government we need to ensure proper supply of housing to meet demand we need to bring in I mean when I lived in London housing associations mm. non-profit makers rent, you know renting out on a communal basis and therefore on a wider scale so that you have an economy therefore um, where mm. you know maintenance and so on can be done yeah. more cheaply do but, need, but it, it shows a failure of housing Do we need policy. to have the conversation about you know w- w- these cuckoo phones coming in and under a lot of criticism you. I mean the well, stuff I mean, that's this been is, said about them. This is the it's thing. Just outrageous. The, these yeah. are professional bodies yeah. who are, you know, set up to uh, run these, uh, you know, apartment blocks and whatever, and they they run them to a high standard. They cho- charge an awful lot of rent. There's questions about how much uh, how much tax they're paying, I suppose, but. Uh, it's a debate that we're having in this country where we, we seem to be taking the approach that these are bad for the country whereas perhaps we need to have a debate that maybe they're necessary. But I think rightly there's a distinction made. you can make a distinction between those bodies that are just coming in simply almost to asset strip to take profits mm. and, and entities like the sort of British Housing London of, Housing Association. A high, high standard of accommodation in, in many cases. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left to go Jordan. unless you have a thought. Yeah, no just on the Housing Association sure. thing we are really small scale in this field and we need to upscale 
Um, but in terms of government housing policy, it's not really pulling in behind the approved housing bodies, in my opinion, mm. here, so that they can do well, it. I always think it's a, that we don't have time to get into it now, but I always think it's interesting that we seem to put so much of our solution to this into housing bodies, which effectively means the state putting a certain amount of the responsibility into well-meaning but private hands, ultimately, rather than taking it but on the local authorities themselves. the state should also themselves. be building and putting much yeah, more investment true. into building. And we've proposed that in Labour, you uh, know, a proper uh, building program. Ivana, I did want to give you a couple of minutes just before we, we run out of time. There's a piece on page seven uh, today of the Sunday Business Post about the reworked adoption bill, which will give children and parents more rights. This is something which has been, uh, you've been working on quite a lot, but something that's been uh, occupying a lot of your, your mental brain power in the Shannon. It certainly has. And uh, it's a great piece by Hannah O'Brien, where she talks about the uh, changes that are being made to the adoption bill. Uh, anyone invo- involved in this will know that uh, Minister Catherine Zappone has recently brought in an adoption information and tracing bill long awaited, uh, ostensibly to give rights to adopted persons to mm. access their birth certificate. Yeah, Explain to us what the shortcomings in that were. The shortcomings in that were, to be honest, the bill was drafted in such a way as to make it extremely difficult for adopted persons to get information about their origins, including their birth certificates. There was a cumbersome adversarial process that was going to have to be engaged in. Mm. I proposed an amendment to the bill that I'm glad to say the Minister has accepted in principle, which is that rather than requiring TUSLA each time an adopted person wished to get information about their birth and their birth cert, TUSLA would have been under under the Minister's original proposal. TUSLA would have had to go and contact the birth parents, make every effort to identify them and f- get their consent. My proposal is instead uh, there would be a six month period within which any birth parent who might have an objection to information being released could come forward, register that objection and thereafter any adopted person who okay. wished to get information would have free access so to So there's it. a presumption on the, the parents' part of consent to have their data shared unless they actively get in touch to exactly. say no. Exactly. So my proposal was opt in rather than opt out. I'm glad yeah. to say Minister Zappone accepted on the record of the Shannad that the Attorney General had accepted my proposal was constitutional and we're now moving forward. I'm working with Minister Zappone. I've met with Tusla. I've met with many adopted uh, people. I've met with uh, the Adoption Rights Association which has been superb on this. People like uh, Susan Lohan, um, Dr Maeve O'Rourke and others who are and we're all trying to work together to ensure that we, we make sure that people have rights to information mm. and that some conservative view of privacy rights doesn't, d- don't you know, this view doesn't usurp or obstruct people getting access to information that they really do need, that they have a right to get and indeed I've been contacted by many birth mothers too who've said they want to see this information going to their, the children mm. they give up for adoption in many cases in circumstances where consent was not really voluntary and, and where they were not given no guarantee of privacy I accept there's a need to ensure a, a mechanism for birth mothers to assert an objection but it can't stand in the way of the right to information yeah. for people who are adopted and who and who need that information yeah. and, in, and I should say other jurisdictions including north of the border there is yeah. a similar proposal a similar a, regime a, a in place to what by Hannah O'Brien's piece. Yes, yeah. and, and Fred Logue is quoted as, as pointing that out. Yeah. That my amendment mirrors what's happening in Northern Ireland and we really shouldn't have a different and more restrictive regime here south of the border. Indeed, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who are affected by that who'll be mystified why the uh, proposal was a kind of an, an opt-out or opt-in in the first place but will be very happy that it's now opt-out. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you all very much for coming in and giving us some time on your Sunday morning. Jared Howland, columnist with the Irish Examiner and Public Affairs Consultant, Ivana Bacic, Labour Senator and Law Lecturer in Trinity College and Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent with independent newspapers and a Sagittarius. Thank you all for coming in to be with us uh, this morning.